Well, hey, New City, glad to be with you online this Sunday morning. As I begin, I want to share a story of a friend of mine who is one of the luckiest people I've ever met. Everything seemed to go his way. I don't know if you know someone like this, but he would talk about how he would call, uh, you know, call in on the radio all the time and be like the seventh or eighth person, whatever it was. And so he had won concert tickets. Uh, he had won coupons to restaurants. And then one time he goes on a cruise and he's like, I win everything. So he, him and his wife were on an elevator going to play bingo on the cruise with this other guy who was on the elevator with them. And he says to this guy, we're going to be the ones that win the free cruise. They play bingo. They won the free cruise. He's also won a free car. I mean, this guy has won everything, right? And so you look at that and you can't help but think, that's not fair. Like, how does he do it? Why does he get everything to go his way, right? And so this morning, as we continue our series in Colossians, we're looking at this question. Is God fair? I think if we're honest, uh, maybe we, we kind of, we might know what, what the intellectual answer to that question is. We might say, well, of course he's not fair, or he's loving, or he's just, or he's kind to everybody. And so we might, we might think that intellectually, but how we actually like play that out in our life is different. Like I think on, often we look at people's lives and we say it's not fair that that is going well for them. Or maybe we look at other people's lives and say that's not fair that, that they keep having these, difficult, these difficulties and these setbacks that they keep experiencing. And we look out to the world and it seems like it's just not fair, right? Is God fair? That's the question we're looking at this morning. And so we're going to continue our time in the book of Colossians. If you have a Bible, we'll be in Colossians chapter 2 this morning, starting in verse 4, going through verse 15. Uh, to give you some context really quick, Colossians is written by the Apostle Paul, who is in jail in Rome, writing a letter to the church in Colossae. Uh, basically, uh, among a number of things, is trying to continue to encourage them in their faith and for them to grow into spiritual maturity. Now, last week, we talked about this idea how about the gospel is the mystery of God revealed in Christ that anyone and everybody can receive the grace and mercy of God, that it is something that is understandable, that is intelligible, and that is open to everybody. And what he wants people to know and understand is that the gospel is that Jesus has accomplished everything on our behalf, that he is perfect and righteous and holy and just, he has done all these things, and that we cannot save ourselves. It is all because of what Christ has done for us. And so he's saying, remember, because the human tendency is to think that we have to earn things, and we have to work hard at things for God to love us, and for things to go our way. Remember, it's not about you. It's all about what Christ has done. And that's what he's been talking about. He's going to really emphasize that in this passage in verse 4. It says this. He says, I am saying this so that no one will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable. He's saying that the gospel is all about what Christ has done so that you might not be deceived by arguments that sound reasonable. What he's trying to do here is he's emphasizing the completeness and the greatness of Christ so that the Colossians and even you and I today would not be persuaded by persuasive teachers that teach Jesus is good and all, but you still have to do X, Y, and Z for him to really love you. Or you still have to do certain things for him to really give you grace and forgiveness. It's, it's not just Jesus, it's Jesus plus a few small other things. What he's saying, I'm trying to encourage you, it is not that. It is Jesus has done everything for us. So don't be persuaded by reasonably sounding arguments that say, well, no, you still have to work at this and earn your salvation. So he says this in verse 5. He says, For I may be absent in body, right? You can't be meet with him physically, but I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see how well ordered you are in the strength of your faith. This is a military imagery when he talks about being well-ordered and strong. It's this idea that the Colossians, and then of course us as believers today, should be troops in a battle formation resisting an army. That's kind of what this idea is supposed to look at. He's encouraging them 
to be strong in their faith, to be uh, faithful, to be pursuing Jesus so that when they receive maybe false teaching or sin in their life, that they might be able to resist it. And so I just want to take a second here. I don't, I don't know what this pandemic has been like for you the past month, but one of the things that I have been thinking about for, for most of this time is like, I just got to get through this, right? I just have to survive till life gets back to somewhat normal or maybe till some of the restrictions are rescinded so we can kind of see people again and, and do more things. And this past week, I've really been convicted of what would it look like for this, for us to consider this question. What would it look like to be stronger than before? In other words, instead of trying to just survive this pandemic and get through it for life to get back to normal again, what would it look like instead of saying, God, I want to be faithful and I want to thrive and I actually want to grow closer to you? What would it look like to be stronger in your faith and how you're pursuing Jesus than before this pandemic began? And not only that, because Jesus cares about all aspects of our lives, what might it look like to be stronger physically or relationally or emotionally? What would it look like for us, for followers of Christ in this time, not just to say, I want to get through this pandemic so that life will be back to normal, but I'm going to use this time of hardship and suffering to be stronger in my faith, to be well-ordered and strong, as Paul is saying here, so that after this, I might be in a position where God can use me to help bring his love and encouragement to others. And so I don't have an answer to that question. I think it might all be different for us, but just something for us to consider during this time of us staying at home and life being not normal. What would it look like not just to try to survive, but to be stronger than before so that we can be, as Paul says, well-ordered and strong in our faith? So with that, he says this in verse 6. He says, So then... Just as you have received Christ as Lord, continue to walk in him, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. He says, just as you had received Christ, it's this idea that you were taught the gospel, you were shown that God has done everything for you through his death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus on the cross. You were taught that, so remember. Remember that the gospel is that Jesus accomplishes everything for us. That it's not what we have done, it's what he has done. And so because of that, we need to, what does Paul say in verse 7? We need to be rooted and then we need to be built up. Rooted is this kind of idea that we have been once and for all saved and forgiven by Christ, that we are secured in him, that we are rooted in him. And because we are rooted in him or when we are rooted in him, then we can be built up, which suggests this idea of continuing to grow in our faith in him. If you want to put maybe some bigger Bible words on it, rooted is this idea of justification, that we have been justified by Christ. It was an act of Jesus on the cross, taking our sins and the punishment of death that we deserve, not because of our goodness, but because of him, we have been justified that we can receive right standing before God because of Christ. And because we have been justified, then we can now be sanctified. And sanctification is this idea of being built up. It's this idea of becoming more like Jesus. That if you want to grow in your faith, which is a worthy goal of all followers of Christ, before you can do that, you first have to be justified and you first have to allow him to change your heart. In other words, we're going to talk about sanctification, this idea of growing in our faith in a couple of weeks. But before we can get there, we need to understand what justification is. And justification, in some ways, could be summed up like this. That your salvation is totally dependent on Christ. Your justification, your standing before God, your forgiveness, your righteousness, your holiness is not about what you do or how hard you try or what activities you refrain yourself from, but it is all about what Christ has done for us. Your salvation 
is 100% all having to do with Jesus and not at all dependent on you. It kind of makes me think of my kids. So Christine and I have two kids. We've got a daughter who's five and a son who's two. And they're young. At this point in their life, the quality of their life is totally dependent on us, right? The quality of my kids' lives right now is totally dependent on us, where they live, what they eat, uh, what their physical or emotional development looks like, what activities they take, their, they, they take part in. Everything in their life right now is totally dependent on the life that Christine and I give to them. Now, as they get older and they grow, hopefully we've set them up to uh, do well in the world and to love Jesus and to care about other people. But for now, everything in their life, their quality of their life is totally dependent on us. And it's the same way with our salvation and Christ. Now, the good news is God is perfect and he's loving and he's holy and he's just and he will never fail us. But, but that being said, our salvation has nothing to do with us. It has to do with him and he has accomplished everything for us through the person and work of Jesus. Your salvation, my salvation is totally dependent on Christ, not what we think or what we do. And so because of that, Paul then says this in verse 8. He says, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. Now, philosophy in Paul's time was a little bit more of a generic word. In our time, it's kind of a little bit more narrow, kind of thinking of like ethics and how to live and and that sort of thing. But in Paul's time, philosophy essentially was like the love of wisdom and how you lived your life. And he's not saying philosophy is bad, but what he's emphasizing here is that the pagan religions of Paul's day and even some of the Jewish believers who had come into the church were all saying that if you want God to love you and have true knowledge of him and receive salvation, then you must do things to seek the approval of God. And so Jewish believers who were kind of wrestling with what does it look like to fully surrender to Jesus might be thinking, well, you still have to do a certain, you have to uphold certain Jewish customs and laws plus believe in Jesus. Or of course, the Roman pagan religions of the day would say you have to go to the temples and you have to do sacrifices and you'd have to participate in some of the civic uh, celebrations that were going on. You have to do these things in order for the gods to give you favor and grace. What Paul is saying is that Christ is over all of these things, and that there are no powers or superstitions or cultural ideologies or man-made religions that, that we should believe in because Christ is over all of these things. He's, he's, he's above all of these things. And so be careful that you don't fall captive to these other beliefs. And here's why. Because verse 9 says this, for the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. Like everything that we need for salvation and grace and forgiveness is in Christ because God's nature is in him. That when Jesus was on the earth, he was both 100% human and 100% God. For the, full, for the entire nat- uh, fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. Verse 10, and you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. What he's saying is that if you belong in Christ, in whom God dwells, right? God dwells in Christ, then you will receive the fullness and the blessings that are coming to Christ and that you and I get to share in Christ's power and in his rule over everything, that we've received the salvation of God. And when that salvation is realized, when Christ returns and reestablishes the heavens and the earth, that we get to participate in Christ's rule because Christ is the head and he has accomplished all of this on our behalf. He is our head and he has all authority. 
And what Paul is saying here is all the other philosophies and power structures and, again, cultural ideologies, they can become rivals to Christ in your life. But the reality is this, that Christ has no rival, right? Christ has no rival. There is no one that can compete with him. There is no one that can fight for him. There is no one that can give you what Christ can give you. And if you and I are not careful, what will happen is we can subtly believe lies that our culture might tell us, that Christ is good, but if I want to experience true life, I also need to do these certain things. Like That God is good, but I also need to pursue or, or, or refrain from certain things if I want to experience true life. And what Paul is saying is that Christ has no rival. There is no one else that can do anything else that, but that other than what Christ can do for you. I think of it, think of it like this. Um, when you look at, when you see people that are good at something, when you see people that are good at something, it's easy to think that what they're doing is easy. But what happens is you realize it looks easy because they've spent a lot of time you know, honing their craft or working on it. So let's say a musician who plays an instrument really well, or maybe someone in your career field who's really wise and really good at what they do and they make it look easy, right? There can be times where people make things look easy and then you realize the reason it looks easy is that they spend a lot of time on it. Like for example, as me as in a pastor, someone who preaches, I remember in college when I first kind of had this, you know, this, this kind of this longing and the desire to possibly pursue ministry, I started to listen to preachers more and pay more attention. And I had this thought that I could do that, that, that I could do that just as good, if not better than some of these people. Because after all they're doing is like opening up the Bible and talking about it. Like how hard can it be, right? I thought I could do it, not a big deal, because I saw people who made it look easy. And then in college, I first had my first opportunity at the church that we were part of to uh, preach to the middle school and the high school ministry. And just to be honest, I was terrible, right? I was awful. I had no idea what to do. I didn't know how to tell stories. I didn't know how to not talk 100 miles an hour. I didn't know how to do transitions. I didn't know how to do anything. I was awful. And to make matters worse, probably about half of the time, I probably preached about 20 times the first year as we were part of the, the college or the youth ministry. Uh, probably about half of those times I preached with my fly open because my favorite pair of pants, the zipper always unzipped. Now you would probably say, Dylan, why do you still wear those pants? I don't know. So to make matters worse, I wasn't good and my zipper was unzipped. And for all you know, my zipper could be unzipped right now. My fly could be open right now, but you can't see it because you can only see this part of me, right? But what, why do I share that? Because I looked at people and I was like, well, I can do that. And I couldn't. And what Paul is saying here is that no ideology, no thing, no person can do for you what Christ has done. That Christ has no rival. There is no one that can compete with him or give us what he can give us. And so with that, he says this in verse 11. He says, you were also circumcised in him, with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh and the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the working of God, who raised him from the dead. What he's talking about here is that as followers of Christ, you already have been circumcised. Now, this might seem I don't know, gruesome or maybe an inappropriate example. We have to understand in Paul's time, this was a pretty normal thing to talk about. Jewish believers uh, would be, males would be circumcised as they were kind of their marking that they were part of the people of God. And so there was a debate again amongst Christian and Jewish believers that even if you believe in Jesus, to really believe in him, you have to also get circumcised. And what Paul is saying is that Jesus did all of this. There is no outward physical thing you have to do to earn your righteousness or your salvation because we have received those things in Christ. 
Uh, David Garland, uh, who is a commentator in his commentary on the book of Colossians, puts it this way to kind of give you perspective of what Paul is talking about. He says this, in Paul's day, a Gentile man became a Jewish proselyte uh, by becoming circumcised, being washed in a ritual bath, and if possible, offering a sacrifice at the temple. So even if you weren't uh, Jewish uh, by ethnicity or by birth, you could still become someone who followed God or what was known as a God-fearer by kind of doing these initiating rites, and then you would be a part of the people of God. And then he says this, that Paul picks up on these three elements of Jewish initiation and redefines them to assure the Colossians of their new status as full members of God's people. His redefinition centers on Christ's death. Christ's death is our circumcision, and we have been baptized, which is washed, into his death. His sacrificial death supersedes all temple sacrifices by canceling forever the charges that placed us on death row. Again, this is all about Jesus. And this is why for us, this is why baptism is so important. Baptism does not save you, but it is a physical demonstration and it is a symbol of us participating in Jesus' death, burial, and ultimate resurrection. What Paul is saying here is, again, there is no thing you need to do in order for God to love you or to get his salvation. It has all been accomplished in Christ. In other words, here's what he's saying, that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus not you trying hard or not you refraining from things, but Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That the salvation and the goodness and the grace of God is given to you only by Jesus. Now, here's the thing. This idea, it warms our hearts, right? We love this idea that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Now, here's the thing. We love it on the surface until sometimes we start to think of the implications of this. And then if we're honest, it makes us uncomfortable. So let me give you some examples. What this means, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. What this means is that you can be highly addicted to pornography or you could be sleeping around and still receive the grace and mercy of God. Because it's not Jesus plus never doing thing, any, anything sexually immoral that equals everything. It's Jesus only. This also means that you could be addicted to alcohol or any other substance abuse, that you could be, run, that could be kind of running your life, that you could still be addicted to these things and still receive the grace and mercy of God. This also means that you can vote for whoever you want to vote for and still be a follower of Jesus. You could vote for Trump. You could vote for Joe Biden. You could vote for an independent. You could be completely irrelevant and not even care about politics. And you can still receive the grace and mercy of God. Who you vote for does not determine your salvation. This means that you could be uh, someone who gossips or prideful or arrogant or is all, someone who, who is always uh, thinking the worst about others and bringing other people down and still be forgiven and be given the grace and mercy of God because it is Jesus plus nothing, not plus you doing things or not doing things. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You could be a racist. You can be a racist and still receive the grace and mercy of God. You could be intolerant, right? Our culture has this high value of tolerance. You could be the most intolerant person, closed-minded person in the world and still receive the grace and mercy of God. Now, when we talk about that, this now makes us feel uncomfortable. We say, hold, hold up. I love this idea that at least for me, that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But as I look online or I look at some of my friends or I look at some of the people in, in the world, some of my coworkers, I think, well, 
they do some pretty awful things. So clearly they have to not just believe in Jesus, but also get their life together. The point is that salvation is that you don't have to do anything. This is what the grace and mercy of God means. Salvation is that you literally do not have to do anything to first receive him. Your justification, your right standing before God has nothing to do with who you vote for, who you sleep with, who you uh, gossip about. It has nothing to do with that. It has all to do with Jesus. Now, while we say that, and of course, it probably makes all of us a little uncomfortable because we say, hold up, that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. Paul also responds to this charge in Romans chapter six and verse one through five. Here's what he says. He says, what then should we say? Should we uh, continue in sin so that grace may multiply? So if we can sin and it doesn't matter, should we just continue sinning because it doesn't matter? Verse two, he says, absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so too many, or so too, so we too may walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, in other words, in two weeks, in terms of how we're getting through Colossians, we're going to talk about sin, and Paul's going to talk about how it will literally kill us physically and spiritually. But the point before we get to, which is, again, this idea of sanctification, growing closer to God, we first have to start with God changing our lives. And the point 